Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is yet another true crime case for my Curious Case series. I'm back, I'm here, my issues are dealt with, I'm coming back with regular videos yet again. Thank you all so much to everyone who supported me over the past couple of weeks and all the YouTubers that stepped in and helped me out with some content. I'd also like to give a massive shout out to Gabulosis because she gave me a really, really wonderful shout out in her most recent video. It was really kind and heartwarming and it almost made me cry, so big thank you and shout out to you, Gabby. Also, another massive shout out to Caitlin Rose for helping me and stepping in last Sunday and helping me out. It means so much to me. I just... The true crime community on YouTube is so kind, so genuine, and it's just so heartwarming. Right, enough rambling. Let's just get on with the video. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made because disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Now, with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Hospitals are supposed to be a place of trust, of safety, and of healing. But as we learned in the Beverly Allitt case, which I'll link in the iCards, if you haven't seen it, hospitals can easily become a place that can attract people with much more sinister intentions. Today, we're going to be discussing the curious case of Efren Saldivar. Efren Saldivar was born on the 30th of September, 1969, and he was born in Brownsville, Texas. His mother had lived in Mexico and had wanted her children to be US citizens so they could have a better shot at life. So she traveled to Texas to give birth to Efren. And as Efren was born on US soil, that meant that Efren was now a US citizen. You could say that from birth, Efren had a role model in his own mother of exploiting others for personal gain. Efren's father was called Alfredo, and after Efren was born, Alfredo traveled to Texas to be with his new family. The young family then moved to Los Angeles, which was where Alfredo started looking for a job as a handyman. Efren's mother, Isora, quickly found work as a seamstress. Now, Efren's family were Jehovah's Witnesses, so the children in the family were all raised in the faith and were taught to spread um, their religion and their faith. Efren did fairly well in school. He applied himself to all his work, but for some reason, he never applied himself enough and always worked slightly below what he was capable of. And teachers liked Efren because of his extroverted personality. And it was during his time at school that Efren started to take notice of kids in higher years taking part in gangs. To Efren, these kids seemed very cool and were full of a kind of personal power that Efren craved. He wanted to have that personal power. At this point, Efren was only in junior high, so becoming friends with the kids in the gangs 
was impossible because they were in high school. And by the time that Efren got to high school, all those kids in the gangs had already graduated or dropped out and left. Efren didn't really fit in with anyone. He didn't fit in with the jocks, he didn't fit in with the scholars, he didn't really fit in with the musical kids. He didn't really have a group that he was like solidly a part of at school. He did take part in the band, but he was quite awkward and a little bit conspicuous um, in ways that a lot of people didn't really like so much. Girls never seemed to be attracted to Efren, uh, especially the girls that he had a crush on. Efren apparently became quite obsessed with the girls that he crushed on. He'd risk public ridicule by sending very intimate messages to the girls that he was crushing on. Despite Efren being very outgoing, he did have a shy side. So, like for many other kids at high school, rejection for Efren was very, very painful and was a common occurrence. He quickly became withdrawn from his school peers and became very close with his family. Efren had no life goals that he voiced to his family or the few friends that he had. He had mentioned that he might go to college one day or that he might enlist in the military. Whenever Efren spoke of his future plans, all his plans seemed to be very vague and have no substance to it. Efren didn't want to start his own business, he didn't want to work for himself, but he also said that he didn't want to work around other people. Eventually, during high school, Efren landed a job at a local supermarket, where he actually began acting quite irresponsibly. To Efren, it was a menial job with no advancements and no career aspects. So Efren would steal odd bits from the supermarket uh, and give them to lads at school and lads that were part of gangs to try and impress them. While Efren was working at the supermarket, he struggled to keep his grades up. He eventually ended up dropping out in his senior year, which meant that he didn't graduate in 1987 with the rest of his class. Efren continued working at the supermarket and began to take his job a little bit more seriously after he dropped out of high school. To Efren, this job was good enough, it brought in money, and he didn't really have any plans for the future. Efren thought that he'd just stay working at the supermarket for the rest of his life. That was until he bumped into an old friend from school. This friend was wearing a uniform and was enrolled in the College of Medical and Dental Careers in North Hollywood. Efren decided that he wanted to look as good and as impressive as his old friend did. He didn't really have an interest in the medical field, but to Efren, the job that his friend worked seemed far more impressive than the job at the supermarket. Efren then decided to take a high school equivalency test so that he could graduate and finish off his diploma. And then in 1988, he enrolled in the technical school that his friend was attending. Now at this school, Efren studied very, very hard and his hard work eventually paid off. Efren had earned his certification in less than one year and he had even managed to line up a job for himself when he went home. Now at this point, Efren was about 19 years old. He was finally wearing the uniform he was so desperate to wear. And he was already and set to start working in the medical field. But in actual fact, Efren had no interest in being a caregiver. Efren's job was to use a stethoscope to take heart rate measurements and to put IVs and injections into patients. He also had to determine whether a patient was having a hard time breathing and if there was enough oxygen in their blood. His job also included respiratory rehabilitation 
and putting tubes down patients' throats when they were struggling to breathe. The last two responsibilities were primarily used in what is known as a code blue emergency. If you're unaware, a code blue emergency in a hospital indicates a cardiac or respiratory arrest or failure. Part of Efren's job was placing people on ventilators to allow them to breathe properly. And those ventilators had to be constantly monitored and adjusted. Efren had a lot of responsibility in his job and he was a trusted part of the medical staff. Efren was very sure to do all of his homework. He learned a lot about the drugs used in the hospital and the computer systems in the hospital. He even had a reputation of being able to talk to the doctors in the hospital about drugs and the computer systems and showed a keen interest in what the doctors were doing. And as you can imagine from all of his hard work, Efren quickly became very, very good at his job. And this was primarily due to the fact that he was very, very good at making conversations with patients when he was giving them help. His patients would open up to him and give them their entire life story and then thank him for helping them out in their time of need. And eventually, like with all medical staff, Efren was placed on the night shift, a move that would change the lives of hundreds of families. On this night shift, which was more commonly known as the graveyard shift, Efren worked mostly alone. There was hardly anyone else about during this graveyard shift, so he ended up working alone without supervision or any accountability. During the majority of Efren's graveyard shifts, there was only usually ever one other technician working in the hospital. And between the two technicians, they had a lot of patients that were scattered about the hospital. So it was very common for them both to work all night long and not ever see each other or rarely bump into one another. The work that Efren had during this graveyard shift wasn't too difficult or overbearing. Emergencies were few and far between. Efren had even had enough spare time and enough dedication to his job that he started to offer his services to other departments on a part-time basis. The hospital itself was very short-staffed and Efren had told his supervisors that he wanted to work overtime so he could help pay towards expenses for his family. To everyone who knew Efren, he seemed like a very competent and responsible guy and he was just a little bit awkward around women. He was always someone that you could rely on for a favor. Efren still lived with his parents at that point but he paid his parents board and he had actually bought his mother a brand new car. From the outside looking in everything seemed very very positive for Efren. Everything seemed to be going right but little did everyone know things on the inside were gradually becoming more and more warped. Efren at one point was actually diagnosed with depression and was put on the drug sertraline, which operates under the brand name of Zoloft. And it was prescribed that drug to help ease the depression. However, at some point and for unknown reasons, Efren stopped taking his medication. Now at hospitals, medical staff on the night shift could easily go in and out of patients' rooms without anyone ever seeing them. Plus, as they were just medical staff going about their medical routines, no one ever batted an eye to seeing a member of medical staff going into a patient's room during the night shift. That kind of sight would never click as being suspicious in anybody's minds. In fact, it would be so insignificant and so not notable that you'd probably forget that you ever saw it. However, some patients would be awake at night 
and would demand things from the medical staff. Now, a few of those patients were simply lonely and just wanted some company, but others were chronic complainers who wanted attention day and night. It was as if some of those patients thought they were at some kind of five-star resort with staff catering to their every need. And let me tell you now, the majority of medical staff don't appreciate this one bit, but they're there to help and they wouldn't say no to a request. Now, one of these people was a woman called Jean Coyle. On the 26th of February, 1997, Jean reached up and pressed the help button in her room and Efren was the person who attended her. According to Jean, Efren went into her room and then she blacked out. She didn't know what had happened or why she had blacked out. But when she came to, she didn't really give it a second thought. She passed it off as her being potentially really tired the night before and that she just fell right to sleep. It wasn't until much, much later on when she discovered what had been going on at the hospital that it dawned on her what had actually happened that night. In April of that same year in 1997, one of the other respiratory therapists suggested to their boss that Efren was doing something to patients at night. This therapist was called Bob Baker and he accused Efren of injecting his patients with something during the graveyard shifts. Now, it isn't really unusual for people to spread rumors about medical staff in a hospital, especially when patients seemed to start dying in ways that seemed almost inexplicable. And without proof, nobody could be suspended or really properly investigated. The head of the department at that time was a man called John Brechtholt. And it was common knowledge that John and Bob had an issue and a dislike towards Efren. And because this was public knowledge, the pair decided not to report Efren to their superiors because it might seem or come across like they were trying to undermine a fellow therapist that they just disliked, which would have damaged their reputation and could potentially even get them suspended. John needed more than hearsay. He needed concrete proof. So he decided to tell another supervisor what he had been told, and together the pair of them decided to keep a very close eye on Efren. Firstly, John and the other supervisor decided to go through all the patient records that Efren attended to during his night shifts. But out of all those records, nothing showed that anything out of the ordinary was going on. So they decided that if Efron was doing something to patients, he was being very, very careful about it. Now, to those who worked closely with Efron, it seemed to them that Efron shifts were jinxed. And this is because they would talk compassionately about a patient who would be in a better place if they passed away. And then that very night during Efron's shifts, that patient would pass away. Sometimes several patients would die in one night. The other therapists started morbidly joking that Efren had the magic touch. While Efren initially was being very careful about what he was doing, he soon became quite careless. Now, as a bit of a practical joke, some of the medical staff decided that they would swap out Efren's clothes in his locker for someone else's. So on a night where Efren was working his night shift, they pried open Efren's locker so they could change out the clothes. However, when they got into the locker, they discovered a bag that contained some very, very potent drugs. The drugs they found included morphine and the drug Pavilon, which is a drug used to stop the breathing rhythms of a patient who is about to be put on a res respirator. They also found in the locker a bunch of empty, clean syringes. No respiratory therapists are allowed to have any of the potent drugs 
outside of the hospital environment and they're definitely not allowed to have any syringes in their locker. And now these other medical staff had had their suspicions about Efren's magic touch confirmed with real evidence. However, because they had broken into Efren's locker, they decided to keep quiet about it. And this was because the year before, they had tried to report Efren for his suspicious behavior, but nothing had come of it. They believed that if they had reported this, then they would have got in trouble for breaking into the locker and Efren would have got off scot-free. The rest of the medical team now knew about Efren's magical touch and that it was very much real. And eventually and inevitably, one of them let it slip whilst they were drunk in a bar to a man. And this therapist who let it slip was called Ursula Anderson. And the man that she let it slip to was called Grant Brussus. And Grant saw this information as an opportunity to make money from the hospital. Grant called the hospital in February of 1998 and try to blackmail them with this information. Grant told the hospital that he would hand the information over to the police if they didn't pay up, insinuating that it would give the hospital bad press, that the hospital would want to pay up to Grant so that this information didn't get leaked out. Now, because this information had come from a third party, the hospital administrators had become very alarmed. When they looked into it, they found that they had a few other reports about a rogue member of medical staff in the night shift that kind of lined up with the tip-off that Grant was telling them. So they decided to not give in to the blackmail and hand the case directly over to the police while they continued their own internal investigation. And during this period of time, two more patients actually passed away on the respiratory units. The police quickly met with the hospital administrators who informed the police of the tips that they had received the year before. The hospital administrators also handed over the number of the caller who had given them the tip. And the police were very quick to track Grant down. Before they spoke to Grant, they decided to run a quick background check on him. And the results of this background check were very interesting to the police. Grant actually had a lengthy criminal record which made his tip off quite suspicious and could have invalidated his tip-off. Grant had actually done time in prison and had participated in a range of crimes, from cocaine-related charges all the way up to grand theft. The police decided that despite this criminal history, they would still follow up and investigate the tip that Grant had given them. To the police, if this tip was true, then they could stop a killer and save innocent lives. And if it was false, then at least they were sure that it was false. The police picked up Grant and started questioning him. And they quickly discovered that Grant didn't actually know that much about what he was telling them and that he he wasn't even sure himself whether the tip-off was true or not. And it came quickly apparent to the police that Grant wanted nothing to do with them. They discovered that Grant had tried to blackmail the hospital and that he didn't actually want anything to do with the police investigation. However, the police needed much more reliable information to be able to move forward in the case. So the police went back to the hospital administrators to try and find out who had given this information to Grant in the first place. They spent hours and hours and hours going through lists and records and employee documents before they settled on Ursula Anderson. And they settled on her because it had been her who had initially mentioned Efren's actions 
to her supervisor and filed a report. When the police questioned her, she was very adamant that she had never leaked any information to Grant and that Grant had made up all of his claims. The police had hit yet another dead end, but they would not give up hope. They would not halt the investigation quite yet. The year before Grant had given the tip off, Bob Baker, who is the supervisor that we talked about earlier, had actually filed a report with the hospital administrators about Efren's magic touch. So the police decided to interview him, suspecting that he may know more than he was letting on. And they were right. He knew a lot more than he was letting on. Bob told investigators about the vials of muscle relaxants and the respiratory medications that were found in Efron's locker. That is when the police finally decided to go talk to Efron. The thought that the police had was if Efron was a killer, that he would react in some ways being picked up. But nobody would expect what happened next. Efron was picked up by the police and was told that he had to take a polygraph test. The polygraph examined asked Efren if he understood why he had to take the test and Efren responded that he had to clear his name. Efren had heard that he'd been accused of killing patients by an anonymous tipper and he told the polygraph examiner that he wanted to talk so that he could prove to people that he was innocent. The police then asked him if he had ever done anything like he was being accused of and at first Efren denied all of the allegations but the polygraph was saying that he was lying. So he quickly admitted that he had been injecting people since he had started working at the hospital, with the first case happening when he was just 19, fresh out of technical school. Efren told the police that he'd been assigned to a elderly female patient. He went on to say that this patient was on a life support machine and that she had terminal cancer. There was no chance of her surviving. According to Efren, this lady was almost over the edge. The doctors had already turned off her life support machines and her family had already said their goodbyes and left. And after Aaron had left, Efren went into the room and noted that the lady was still breathing, but she was still unconscious. So Efren said that he felt very, very sorry for her and out of mercy, he connected two of the respiratory tubes together, which would effectively slowly suffocate her. He later admitted that he had injected a patient with the drug Pavulon, Uh, via IV. He said that he had found a bottle of the drug after a code blue emergency and had kept it in his locker. The police immediately read Efren his rights and advised him that he could have a legal representative or a lawyer present for the rest of the interview, but Efren ignored this advice. And he kept on talking freely. He actually kept on talking for two hours straight. At first, he said that his first lethal injection was in 1997 and that he had only ever done this twice. He then went back on himself and said that him and other therapists went room to room, injecting patients who they didn't deem worthy of living anymore. He continued to say that he only ever did it because he felt sorry for the patients and it was a merciful action that he was doing. He claims that it was less than 50 patients that he had killed, estimating the number to be around 40. He had jumped from just two lethal injections to 40 lethal injections in just a few minutes. Now, Efren prided himself on having very ethical criteria of how he chose his victims. According to Efren, they had to have had a do not resuscitate order. They had to have been ready in his eyes and they had to have been unconscious, which by the way, could have simply meant that they were asleep 
Um, he was working the graveyard shift, so it would have been very likely that most of the patients were asleep anyway. The drugs he used to inject patients would have been very difficult to detect in a autopsy um, unless a specific test was used. The police at this point with his confession needed evidence to prosecute Efren and that meant that they had to find the illegal drugs in Efren's possession and they had to exhume some of the patient's bodies to try and detect the drugs that he had claimed to have used on them. That same evening Efren was arrested. The next day the police conducted a thorough search of his home but they found no incriminating drugs. Now as I'm sure you know the police aren't allowed to hold somebody in custody solely based on a confession without any physical evidence. So Efren was released after 48 hours and the police continued their investigations. Efren was terminated on the 13th of March 1998 from his employment at the hospital and just to be safe the hospital also suspended 37 other people in the respiratory department. Efren eventually retracted his confession and said that he hadn't actually killed anyone. He claimed that he had a mental disorder along with depression and that he had been pressured to confess. He claimed to have made the entire thing up. Now without his confession the need for physical evidence became greater for the police to be able to prosecute him in this case. The police soon learned that a death through the drug of Pavulon would have been very very painful and very long suffering for the patient. It wouldn't have been merciful at all. Once administered the patient would go into a conscious paralysis and they would have felt every single second of the death by suffocation. The patient couldn't even scream for help as their throat closed up. They just had to lie there helpless in a world of pain until it was all over. The police had thousands of records to go through as over a thousand patients had died during the time that Efron was working shifts uh, during the eight years that he worked at the hospital. And the police knew that they couldn't exhume all of those people. So they attempted to narrow down their list to only the most recent cases and only people who had died under mysterious circumstances. For example, if a patient had seemingly been okay and then suddenly died for no apparent reason. And obviously the patient must also have not been cremated. It took the police force an entire year to settle on a short list of patients for which they would exhume. To be able to prosecute Efren, only a few of these victims would have had to be obvious murders. One by one in the summer of 1999, each of the 20 victims were exhumed from their graves. Pathologists examined the bodies and there were tests run to detect the Pavillon drug in their tissues. At first, however, all the tests came back negative. The police were very disappointed by this and they had hoped that they hadn't worked for an entire year just for it to come back negative and for no reason at all. And then they got a hit and another one and another one. After all 20 exhumations were complete, six out of the 20 patients had tested positive for the drugs that Efren had initially claimed to have used in the murders. In January of 2001, criminal charges were prepared. The police followed Efren, who was now 31, to his job at a construction site. They then arrested him for the murder of six patients. All the victims had been elderly and one of them had actually had a mental disability. Efren was quickly booked and to the police's surprise, he began to talk even more. He told the police that at the hospital, they had been understaffed, so to lighten the workload, he had eliminated 
some of the patients. He also admitted that once he got to about 60 victims, he had lost count. He claims that he had probably killed more than 100 different patients. He said that he grew so used to the killing that it didn't bother him in the slightest. He said that he forgot most of the patients' faces and forgot most of the murders. Efren's new confession and the physical evidence was enough to take him to court. In March of 2002, Efren Saldivir pleaded guilty to six counts of murder in exchange for life imprisonments over the death penalty. Efren was given six consecutive life sentences for the murder of six patients and 15 years in prison for the attempted murder of Jean Coyle. Had Efren been given the death sentence, he actually would have been injected with a drug similar to the one that he used in his patients and his victims, so he would have suffered the same fate. Ursula Anderson's medical license was also suspended due to extreme neglect. And that is all I have for you in this case. Let me know down in the comment section what you think of this case. It is a solved case. Um, this case reminds me so much of the Beverly Alec case, but the psychology is quite different. Um, it's very, very interesting. Let me know in the comments down below what you think. Like I said, if you're new here, I usually upload two videos a week, one on a Wednesday, which is a lighthearted video, one on a Sunday, which is a true crime video. But the Wednesday videos at the moment are kind of being suspended a bit because I'm currently in Belfast. If you can tell by the hotel room I'm currently in, shooting a pilot for a TV show. So I'm not really able to do the Wednesday videos, but I'm making sure I'm getting the Sunday videos done for you. And I'm gonna try and pre-film a bunch and get more true crime videos lined up for you all. Also leave your case suggestions down below. Don't forget to like and subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next video. gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details